This is Justin DeClue giving you the final warning that this weekend on Saturday, October 21st, I will be hosting my annual 24-hour horror movie Mind Melter. 24 hours of horror movies handpicked by me. All sorts of movies. Ghost movies, slasher movies, monster movies from around the world. And I can guarantee you there will be some things here that if you do not tune in, you will not be able to see them anywhere else. So I hope you will join me, if not for the full 24 hours, which is how I expect every viewer to watch it, at least for a movie or two, to discover something, watch it with a crowd, and just have the best spooky time you can this Halloween season. So again, I hope to see you at the 24-hour horror movie Mind Melter at twitch.tv slash important cinema club again that is twitch.tv slash important cinema club starting on october 21st at 11 a.m eastern standard time Hello, my name's Justin LeClure, and I'm here today with... Will Sloan. And you're listening to the Important Cinema Club Shocktober Edition. to suck your blood. What's up, Doc? Uh, Is it the Doxorcist? Is that what we're talking about? (laughs) No. This week, we're talking about films written by Stephen King. And I'm being very specific here. We only talking about films that the screenplay says written by Stephen King. So, if you don't know who Stephen King is, that's like <laughs> if saying if you don't if you know found- who if you don't know who Walt Disney is, yeah, like, or Jesus Christ himself, <laughs> written more than 70 books, more than 30 of which have been number 1 bestsellers. Can you fucking believe that? I that, can't that, believe that's that. That's insanity. And those books and his masses of short stories have spawned a cottage industry of movies, full of movies that Maybe you forgot were Stephen King movies. Some of the most beloved of all time. The, the Shining, Carrie, The Shawshank Redemption. Sometimes they come back. Uh, Dream Sometimes Catcher. they come back again. Uh, uh, Body Bags, did he write that? Or was that just a Carpenter joint? Uh, I don't remember well, thin- exactly. Okay, Thinner, he wrote that. Mm-hmm. Uh, Maximum Overdrive. He directed Maximum Overdrive. Uh, many, many other films. Mm-hmm. I could go through the letterbox list later on, uh, on Dolores this Dolores Claiborne. Mm, Misery. That's a Stephen King one. I mean, for God's sake. Stand said, by me. It. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, people know that Stephen King wrote it. Some of the most beloved and some of the least beloved movies and of all time. everybody in the world who considers themselves a cultured person has at least writ, uh, read three Stephen King books. Right, Will? That's uh, an interesting thing you should say. So, listen, I'm not as well-read as I should be. This mm. is one of my Wait, wait, wait. My but we both have glasses. We should be very well-read. I mean, I'm, I'm moderately well-read, but there are huge literary blind spots for me. All right. Top five favorite Russian novels. Go. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, and so I, I've, you know, I do, I, I haven't avoided Stephen King out of snobbery or out of any, or out of uh, distaste for subject matter. I've, I'm surprised that back in your watching SNL and, and, you know, viewing those Woodman movies as a young child, wanting to feel adult, Stephen King was not something that you reach for. Was it because perhaps you saw it as trash at the time? I don't think so. I don't think I ever thought to read them, hmm. which is odd. Stephen King, like millions of young people out there, I feel, was one of my gateways into reading a lot. Goes through usually goosebumps, 
And then Fear I've read Street. a lot of goosebumps. And you never graduated to Stephen King afterwards. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I mean, I would like I would like to read more. I think it's also a matter of availability that when I was a kid and you go to my tiny local library where the librarians would smoke indoors so every book smelled of smoke Stephen King they had so many of them they were just so accessible so that would be the thing that I would reach out for and people like my dad had opinion on Stephen King novels now do I know my dad as someone who read very much no but he did read Stephen King novels so by extension I was like well I should be reading these too I guess well you know it's remarkable when you look at the career so born in 1947 Grew up poor. In 1973, he was a poorly paid school teacher. I mean, it's one of the most famous origin stories in all of literature. He threw out a couple of pages of a draft novel that would become a little book called Carrie. Not one of his books that I like. Have you ever read Carrie? It's an epistolary novel. No, but I've, I've seen the movie. Of course, yes. Uh, but his his wife picked those pages out of the trash and said, you have to finish this. The rest was history. And uh, in his career, film and literature have intertwined. Film has boosted his literature career and you know needless to say he's provided a lot of fodder for film in 1979 stephen king told the new york times the movie made the book and the book made me he's mm. talking about carrie yeah because like selling the movie rights to that book launched him and then that book was followed by and it's in it's insane like the books that followed it salem's lot the shining rage the stand the long walk and the dead zone that now, was the first run of books two of those did not technically follow because rage and the long walk were books he published under a pseudonym mm. as richard backman right uh but yes like it's wild how many of those were just massive hits that were then turned into media properties that became incredibly iconic if you look at the movies that were made from his books if you were like alive during that period you're like well, there'll never be a bad Stephen King film. Even like a TV miniseries of Salem's Lot, incredibly iconic for people, directed by Toby Hooper. And it's like, wow, he'll never miss from here on out. Uh, and he never did. No. So, Well, it's not his fault. So as somebody who knows the Stephen King books, yes. what do you attribute his success, both as like an author of literature and as a idea man for movies too? So he is kind of mysterious. Is like, what is the thing that has captured the public's imagination beyond the fact that he is incredibly prolific? So there'll always be a new Stephen King book around the corner. But that doesn't make him special because a lot of people are prolific and they're not as successful as Stephen King. And also a lot of people have good ideas. Yes. R.L. Stein had a good idea <laughs> every month and he's not Stephen King. And Stephen King, I think, and this is very important by his books, incredibly readable. That when you pick up a Stephen King book and you start reading, you want to keep reading. And he doesn't write short books either. I think that he is so good at creating character and just kind of a world that people can sink their teeth into, that that makes it iconic enough and that people want to keep coming back to it. And I think it is undeniable that that early run created enough of a goodwill that he will always have that goodwill, that you will always walk into drugstores like I did this morning and went, wait, what's this Stephen King book? I thought one just came out like a couple weeks ago called Fairy Tale. Now there's a new one on the shelf? You mentioned the world building. I understand that this is one of the important things too, like like Maine as a setting for his books. Yeah, his books are insanely interconnected in a way though that I think that people don't, 
need to understand because it gets really in the weeds, but is present enough that there is something attractive to knowing that all of this stuff kind of goes together. And I know enough about Stephen King just from having seen a lot of the movies based on his books that there are certain themes that recur throughout. I mean, there are often kind of troubled patriarchal figures. In Lots the books. of writers. He loves writing about writers. Uh, writers who, you know, much like himself, have struggled with addiction and are, you know, have, have, have struggled in unsettled family lives, mm. uh, writers who have struggled with their own masculinity. Am I am I correct in this assumption? Yep, you are correct. What did you think of The Shining when you read it? And why did you read it? Well, I read it because I loved the movie so much. Mm. You know, I mean, when you're a teenager and you're watching your Stanley Kubrick movies, and I knew that of all these movies, apparently the only one Stephen King didn't like was the best one, The Shining. All and right, that, let's, and let's get it out of the way. People. Let's get out of the way that Stephen King has bad movie taste. Well, I used to love, I have read the column he used to write for Entertainment Weekly, The, yes. the Pop of King. Yeah. And yeah, he has bad taste. But now, at the same time, a Stephen King quote will make a movie, like it did Sam Raimi's The Evil Dead, That's where right. he saw it at an early screening, I think probably at a sales market, and based on that, they were able to sell it he all over it the place. the most ferociously original horror film of the year. And so actually, it's maybe a little imprecise to say he has bad taste. He has simple taste sometimes. Mm, yes. I mean, I remember looking at his list and going, wait, there's two Jason Statham films in your top 10 list of this year? Death Race and The Bank Job? I think that his taste in movies is much like what he wants to do himself. He wants to be entertaining. He's but, pulpy. But I think that his taste in uh, writing is much more complex mm -hmm. and that like he famously reads all the time and that's what happened i mean this is like stephen king's been around so long that it's easy for people not to know that like when i was a kid stephen king was defined by being hit by a guy driving a van that was how i first heard of him too actually when i was like seven or eight years and he old. was reading a book when he was walking down the street and the guy just plowed into him and like people were like is stephen king gonna die like what's going on and you know that kind of led into a whole stream of films, including Dreamcatcher, and that like his life, you know, people that are older than us, maybe, oh, I'm more defined by Stephen King's Coke period. Mm -hmm. The fact that he said that he wrote Cujo completely in a blackout and has no memory of ever doing it. So I know that, you know, in the earlier stages of his career, like Circa in the Mouth of Madness, which mm -hmm. is about a Stephen King-like author, like there was a popular perception that, well, he's trash, basically. He's like McDonald's. Like he's a skillful, you know, purveyor of cheap thrills. And I think that was also a symptom of so many imitators that like Stephen King's success basically launched an entire horror paperback market of people trying to do, you know, horror novels, mostly selling them in a Stephen King vein. And they were everywhere. And so like his movies, huge successes when they came out, those early ones. And then you get diminishing returns. <laughs> like uh, I'm looking here. When did it start going south? Because it didn't for a while. Uh, like thinner? No. Well, you got Carrie. You got Salem's Lot. You got The Shining. You get Cujo. I like Cujo. Louis Teague. Mm. You got Dead Zone. Good movie. Christine, underrated. Children of the Corn. Uh, not very good. Firestarter. Oof, not so hot. Uh, Cat's Eye. Uh, it's okay. A lot of these were hits, though. Yeah, they were hits. I'm just talking about the quality themselves of the movies. Silver Bullet, I will argue, Silver Bullet, and we'll get into this when we start talking about the movies that we watch, probably one of the better Stephen King adaptations of be being able to kind of transfer the tone of his stories to the vibe of the movie. So getting back to kind of like Stephen King and the vibe, it is so hard to do it 
without stylizing it in a specific way. In the case of Carrie, you can do it visually, where it's kind of like, you know, you have this very heightened world from the novel, but through Brian De Palma's virtuosic work, it can feel heightened, but then not feel off-putting. In uh, Stanley Kubrick's The Shining, he kind of takes all of the, I guess, you know, good old boy Stephen King vibes out of it and just makes it cold and calculating, stripping it down to its bare elements, which makes it scary. Well, regarding The Shining, and I'm sure everybody already knows this who's interested in film, but like one of the quotes that Stephen King said that like has always stuck with me was he said, I think Stanley wants to hurt people with this movie. Uh, he, he said that. And I mean, I understand that The Shining was a particularly personal book for him, being as it is about an author and family man, like struggling with alcoholism. And like, there's something, you know, hopeless about the movie. Well, the book at the end, the protagonist, spoiler alert, sacrifices himself to save his family. Right. So there's a kind of doing the right thing, moment of realization. And I think Stephen King watching the Kubrick version, there's none of that. There's and, it, just... and you can imagine watching the Kubrick movie being like, in fact, you're saying that everything I was building to in the book was wrong, was mm. a lie, and that actually there's no hope. Mm. Thankfully, Mick Garris... Just came in and <laughs> so, he directed. I, I, I love this. In the late 90s, you know, The Shining has been canonized at this point. And Stephen King's like, fuck it. I am going to I'm going to make clear to people how it should have been. I'm going to get Mick Garris. We're going to make a, a fucking multi-part miniseries to show what The Shining should be. And, and the let's rest do it. history. <laughs> and we don't talk about the Kubrick version anymore. That's right. <laughs> it's only the made-for-TV Mick Garris version. But, I mean, I actually think there's something in this split that's kind of interesting because... You know, Kubrick took the raw materials of the book. He took the good idea of the book, but he drained it of a lot of the the Stephen Kingness. Mm, I know? absolutely agree with you. Uh, whereas there are a lot of the people who are defenders of Stephen King, as like a literary stylist would say, the good idea is only one part of it. Like what's actually it's, it's the it's the like, way that it's like written and the voice I feel, and also like just the recurring preoccupations. Yeah. Like what separates him from, I assume, from all those thousands of imitators is that. There are certain themes and locations and just feelings that well, like when I read a Stephen King book now, like a new one, I love the first two hundred pages, like the table setting, the characters. The second in his new books, when he gets to the horror, I'm like, Snoozeville. <laughs> I'm gonna say right now, I don't think Stephen King can write action and set pieces that well. I think he tends to overwrite it. And I will echo something that my dad said when I was ten years old, and I asked him about Stephen King. He went, "Yeah, I love Stephen King." Can't write endings though, and <laughs> is that something that I that like still dogs him to this day? Do people still say that as a kind of universal truth? Is that something that you think of when you think of Stephen King? I mean, I don't, but please write in and tell us. Does Stephen King still write bad endings? And I mean, have you ever seen the stand, the TV version? I no, know you haven't written the book. No, okay. it's a bit of a blind spot. It literally ends with the hand of God coming down <laughs> unprompted and setting off a nuke. Like a deus ex machina. And when Stephen King talks about it, he's like, I figured it out. Didn't know how to end this book. Boom, we end it with the hand of God. It's like, ugh. In the TV movie version, it's literally like an optical hand <laughs> that comes down. Uh, it doesn't work. And Mick Garris will be the last filmmaker that we will talk about. But Mick Garris is the guy that Stephen King is like, this guy adapts my script exactly the way I wrote it. And there's a big problem with that, which is Stephen King especially his characters, when you bring them to the screen, unattached to the description and the vibe of his novels, they are goofy as hell. Mm -hmm. Like on the page, especially the way that Stephen King loves putting like a Shakespeare, if you will, 
uh, invented phrases in people's mouths that they tend to repeat over and over again. If you do not have the correct tone for the move that you're making, it will just jar with the audience, which I love Mick Garrett's. We're going to talk about him a little bit later, especially as a kind of like cultural, you know, force of bringing all these horror people and elevating this stuff with things like Masters of Horror, the interview show that he had on the Z channel. But as a filmmaker, when he got in that Stephen King made for TV, lots of issues. But first, I want to talk about the guy. He was going to be the Stephen King director, that his name was attached to all the early Stephen King adaptations, George Romero. And I'm kind of glad he didn't go down that path. I mean, George Romero would argue... Not that I loved the path he went down anyway. I would have liked to make more movies. Yeah. Thank you very much, Will. <laughs> yeah, but Creep Show from 1982, which was one of, I think, George Romero's biggest financial successes. Mm. Certainly one of his most high-profile studio releases. And, uh, like, George Romero, I don't know what period. I'm sure that he was attached to probably, like, Salem's Lot at some point. He was attached to The Stand, definitely, mm. which I don't know what a two-and-a-half-hour version of The Stand would look like. Probably not be very good, or would probably just just, you know, slim things down to just the bare elements. But Creepshow seems to be a match made in heaven. So, yeah, this is Stephen King's screenwriting debut, his mm. first screenplay. And it is a series of five short stories, basically, an anthology film, all united around the aesthetic and tone of old EC horror comic books. Did you ever read any EC horror comic books, Will? I've read some of them like in my adulthood oh. and, and I like them very much. I love this when I was 12 years old. Yeah. I love when not Creepshow specifically because I didn't see it for a long time, but I loved EC comics. I don't know how I heard of them. Probably through Tales from the Crypt Keeper, which played when we were right. kids. I I've like got some of the like compilations of yeah. that they've put out in recent years, but I didn't I didn't read them at an impressionable age. And when you watch something like Creepshow, like there had been a Tales from the Crypt movie before this. It was a vault of horror but none of them like went all in like George Romero did. I feel like most people listening to this podcast have seen Creepshow, mm -hmm. but just in case you haven't, basically it's five stories. Some would say too many stories. The maybe. film is two hours long. Maybe, maybe. <laughs> Although I got to say the story is like always shifting over pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. It's like 20, 25 minutes a piece. So you're never quite bored. A uh, great wraparound story of Tom Atkins throwing away his son's uh, comic book played by a young Joe King. I'm sure a lot of people will know this too, but the important historical context for this is for several years in the 1950s, uh, horror comics ran wild. There's some of the most gruesome comic books ever made were being made in the 1950s and impressionable kids were reading them everywhere. And sooner or later, enough uh, PTA groups and parents yeah. started to find out what well, their kids were reading. It's one man who wrote a book called The Seduction of of the innocent right. that also said stuff like batman and robin gay <laughs> yeah which is true and uh, so and it's fine what ended up happening was the comic book uh self-censored itself with right. the comic books code and all those comics went away and they were replaced by mad Jer magazine uh jerry lewis comics <laughs> and uh bob hope comics and uh what what else like uh, whatever three stooges three stooges comics yogi bear uh know. we love it ladies and all gentlemen the good stuff and so uh this movie version there's five stories what's great about this movie is uh not only does it completely recreate the vibe of the comic book but it does it so gleefully where like anytime there's a shock it'll be like the face of the actor going oh with colored lights on their face and they even create the border of the comic around their face yeah that's right like there are you know canted angles yep. and, and stuff like that the the actors in certain moments are encouraged to emote like a comic strip character if anything i would have liked to have seen the movie go like even further further in that style because the style that that comic style kind of goes in and out 
Uh, but I look, I like this movie. It's creep show. It's Th- fun. There's some really fun sequences where like there's even they go from panel to yeah. panel uh, yeah, yeah. for scene transitions. And man, if you haven't seen Creepshow in a while, what a killer cast in this movie. Like, well, so Leslie Nielsen is funnier here, I think, than in almost all the actual comedy. How he's dare ever. you, Will? We've talked about this before. I, look, I love Naked Gun too, but I will say that. But I isn't think, he isn't he funny in this movie? He, he actually, is, but I think he's good in this movie too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. like I listened to the commentary for this, and George Romero's like, man, Leslie. Nielsen's such a good actor. And, and watching this, I actually felt a little bit mournful. It would have been like, oh, oh I, like more of I this. I would have liked to have seen in his later years him get to act more, mm-hmm. you know? Now, I will say that this movie, uh, out of five, do we need two uh, people get killed and come back from the dead as zombies to enact revenge? So, yeah, I thought that was maybe the weakest segment, although some of the makeup was, was kind of Oh, cool. on uh, the one uh, with Leslie Nielsen? No, no, no. Sorry. The uh, first one. Sorry, the first one is what I was Yeah, thinking. the first one seems to be like, let's give people people what they expect from this you want to hear something funny i saw a screening of creep show at the tiff Bo- light at the tiff bell light box george romero came out and did a q a he said that stephen king disliked the movie because the main woman vivica linfers like kind of uh improv in her scene by the grave and because of that stephen king's like i don't want to talk about this movie just because that one character was changed from the script stephen king wrote which just goes and show you that stephen king is like very loyal that if he's writing a script you follow that script word by for word mm. or like he may just like eh, i'm gonna disown th- this movie but yeah i think my two favorite segments are the leslie nielsen uh ted danson segment because it's just a great it's a great hooky premise it's a great ec comics premise you don't know where that short is going right that like it can feel like one of the crime comics too of leslie nielsen burying ted danson up to the neck in sand and then the tides coming in and you're like oh no what's gonna ha- is he gonna die i mean of course he is you know what the story's gonna go but it lets you rest in that segment i also like uh, the the last segment they're creeping up on you with yeah. eg marshall what can i say the cockroaches are just a great the, gimmick they're just gross you yeah know, like yeah. that i actually like the crate i also uh, i like the style of the segment yeah. too you know i like the crate because i feel like out of all the segments there's a lot going on and you may not be shocked to learn that the crate is actually based on a short story mm-hmm. why there's so much kind of like meat on those bones and hal halbrook gives such a good performance as the hen- yeah. and so does adrian barbeau very out of character compared to who she usually plays as the kind of hen-picking uh wife of hal halbrook what do you think of the stephen king segment the one with him as the yokel who I think it's very self-indulgent. I find the ending very disturbing. And I remember watching this on VHS where it's so comedic and like all over the place. And then it ends with him basically being like, please let me have some luck. And then blowing his head off. Uh, I think this is just an interesting movie though, to think about in the context of either doing a Stephen King or a George Romero episode, because it's, it's, you know, it's not really, it's, I feel, first of all, it feels more Stephen King than Romero to me, Mm. but it's filtered through another style and another sensibility. And it's a kind of, of, you know, I wouldn't I wouldn't at all call it a spoof of the EC horror comics. I think it's like but a it's, it's, loving homo- or yeah. just an example of EC horror. But it's also like it's it's knowing. I don't think like being really scary is its top priority. No, either. I don't think so either. It's like a haunted house. But I do think a lot of people who would see this as kids because that kind of vibe would lend it for kids to see it would be disturbed by images in it, whether it be like the big fluffy monster coming out and ripping out a guy's throat in graphic detail. Yeah, if I were a kid, I would certainly be scared by it. I would like as a thought experiment to think about a different reality where 
Romero and Stephen King like brought sort of the full weight of their horror making abilities to make like like non ironic version. Yeah, exactly. Like, what would that have looked like? I lo- I like the one we have. Mm. I- I'm just saying. I think it would have been interesting. Uh, a little movie called The Dark Half, starring Tim Math <laughs> Matheson. Oh right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> What's happening to this monkey's paw? I picked. <laughs> <laughs> so moving on, Stephen King did write like a bunch of movies. I don't know what prompts him to get involved with a script or not. For example, The Silver Bullet that I mentioned, which I think is so good, and I cannot confirm or deny this, but I think one of the reasons it's so good is that Don Coscarelli wrote the script, worked really hard on it with Stephen King, and then supposedly was fired a couple weeks into shooting. And then they brought on a TV guy who it's the only movie he ever directed, but you get the vibe that he followed Don Coscarelli's like setups or storyboards and his casting was already there. And that, like, a Don Coscarelli Stephen King movie, like, that's perfect together. And it's a real shame that Don Coscarelli could not have used that to a springboard to make non-phantasm-based movies, which he seemed to have been trapped in his entire life. But instead, we got Mary Lambert's Pet Cemetery, which people need to remember was a massive hit when it came out. Yeah, and this was kind of peak Stephen King. This is when all the imitators were at their peak. This is when, yeah... 10 Stephen King books in every drugstore mm. as opposed to three today. Uh, Mick Garris said that when he goes out with Stephen King, that Stephen King will go to a drugstore and just like sign all the books That's and so then funny. put them back on the shelf. <laughs> it's kind of like uh, a B Stephen King premise, mm-hmm. but like, I don't know. It's it, Stephen it King at the time was like, oh, it's my scariest book that I've ever read. And I think the book, is it scary? It was never one of my favorites, but... I remember the movie because my dad said, oh, yeah, your sister. It was like the scariest movie she ever saw when we watched it together. Like it gave her nightmares forever. What made it so scary for her? I don't know. Maybe just like the idea of like something coming back from the dead. I got to say, not one of my favorites, mostly because, boy, the lead in this movie sucks. Yeah, yeah. He's a bit of a void, isn't he? <laughs> and uh, but the, Fred Gwynn. Oh, Fred Gwynn is so good in this movie. Where? where the serious Fred Gwynn role. I know. Like, because he's so strong in this film. When he's not on screen, people are like, where's Fred Gwynn? Bring him back. I completely agree. So the plot is a family moves to a house in where else? Rural Maine. Uh, They have this elderly neighbor, Judd, played by Fred Gwynn, who introduces them to the pet cemetery that's in a forest near their home. But it was built very near to an indigenous burial ground. And, you know, that that's bad news. Mm -hmm. So the house, also bad news, the house happens to be right next to a highway. Uh Uh-oh, I hope no kid will be walking into this highway, which will lead to uh, perhaps some resurrection without a soul and their monsters. So, yeah, so the first two thirds of the movie are a variety of bad happenings, most of them involving the highway. Yeah, the thing about the movie is it's a real kind of like day in the life film where watching it this time, I'm like, if I didn't know where this was going, I'd be like, what is this movie about? Like, what are we leading towards? Well, we we eventually get there. I mean, we find out that the indigenous burial ground, you know, the old man at one point in his childhood, like, buried his cat there and it resurrected. A dog. Yeah. And it it didn't seem normal after that. And so when the family cat gets killed by a a car Mm. speeding on the highway, the old man takes the, the younger man out back and says, here, bury it here. And. Uh, who knows what'll happen. I hope that you don't bury any human beings, though. Yeah. So if anybody close to you dies, perhaps a two-year-old boy, don't bury him here. And that goes to all you listening, too. Yeah. If there's don't a, do if it. If there's a burial ground out back, 
that can has the powers of resurrection. So I kept waiting. My memory of the movie was that the guy was just dumb and he did it. But I appreciated that the movie is like, no, he's insane. Like he can't control himself. That's why he does it. Now, I c- couldn't stop thinking about this movie that was supposed to be directed by George Romero at one point and then saying they wanted to cast Bruce Campbell as the main guy. Oh. That would have been perfect because he would have been like losing his mind and Bruce Campbell would have that kind of like straightforward kind of like dad in a movie thing. And also like the sort of pulpy sensibility yes. of a Stephen King book. That's the thing about this movie is I think it gets the pulpy sensibility right. That it feels goofy. Like when it cuts to credits, there's an original Ramon song, Pet Cemetery, that plays. Or you know who would be a good actor for something like this? Uh, Jeffrey Combs. Like, yes, like how he was in Castle Freak. Yes. Where like, there's a kind of sweaty desperation to him that's mm-hmm. really real and raw. Instead, you get this nobody that's like yeah. every line reading feels very blank. Now, this is a movie. It's so Stephen Kingy that you can understand him writing the screenplay and them going, we have to follow it word by word. There's like ghosts. There's psychic children. There's a, you know, disturbed patriarch mm-hmm. who's sort of losing control of the family. And so like. I can appreciate what it is. I also appreciate that it actually sticks to its guns and it has a real bummer of an ending Mm -hmm. that uh, they went back and reshot that the original version, they were like, oh, it's more ghostly and, you know, a figure that dies comes back and what will happen? Instead, they have the figure come back and they're all like disgusting and there's like goop running down their face, which is... Interesting because I don't usually associate Stephen King with kind of like goop and gore. That's not really what he does in his novels. Mm -hmm. And I think he talks about it in Dance Macabre in that like, you know, Salem's Lot had a lot of gross stuff in it in the original version, but like his editor forced him to take it out because that's like not really the kind of book that he writes. But the movies have kind of capitalized on that. And I think that you need that kind of grossness because that's what we associate in a visual medium with the very arch tone that a lot of his work can take. Now, 1992's Sleepwalkers is directed by Mick Garris, mm-hmm. who you mentioned earlier. Stephen King's uh, favorite of his own directors, kind of Stephen King's house director. Basically because... From the sense that I get, Stephen King hands him a script and he goes, no problem, boss. And he just does it word for word. And Mick Garris, as you said, an enthusiastic uh, fan and supporter of horror movies. Yes, huge. Like I mentioned, the Z Channel, which was an L.A. institution. Mick Garris was like an 18-year-old doing interviews with David Cronenberg, John Landis, Joe Dante. Any like clips where you see those filmmakers very young, they're probably being interviewed by Mick Garris. Yeah, in fact, the Criterion Blu-ray of Videodrome has that great roundtable discussion of Cronenberg. Uh, Cronenberg and Carpenter and um, who else is in it? Uh, uh, I don't remember. Maybe, yeah, but it maybe was, Romero. Honestly. Yes, it was all kind of like uh, auteur maudit kind of yeah. talking about censorship and things like that. Uh, and I like I like McGarris as a director. You know, he's I, unfussy. Yeah, he he can be goofy. I think probably his Achilles heel is unfortunately after a string of movies where you feel the sense. Oh, McGarris is gaining control. He's kind of going down his own avenues. You got like Critters Two, which is very goofy. I think superior to the first Critters. And then you have like Sleepwalkers. Like these are theatrical movies. But once he moves into TV land, which listen, the golden ticket of being able to direct Stephen King's The Stand as a kind of like network big event. It was like, who could turn that down? But that sent Mick Garris into TV land and he's never been able to escape it since. But we're talking about Sleepwalkers, which was very notable for being kind of like the first, I believe, original story that Stephen King wrote for the screen. Uh, Yes, he'd written screenplays before, but this was the first one that was conceived entirely for the screen. Mm -hmm. So what is a Sleepwalker, you may ask? Well, Well, the film opens with a definition. That's right. They are uh, basically shape-shifting 
cat-like vampire beings. Mm-hmm. Uh, they operate very much like vampires. You know, they they drain you of your life force, and they have uh, one enemy in this world, which are actual cats. Yeah, they hate cats. Cats are like basically an allergy that burns them. Cat, cats, cats can sense them too. Yeah, they know and cats there. want to come towards them. And I was reading up on Stephen King and that and Pet Cemetery and. I don't know if it's that much present in the novel, but they shot scenes where it's supposed to indicate that the pet cemetery, there was kind of like a Wendigo creature, Wendigo being shapeshifters. And that's what was coming back to people and attacking them, which is funny because that's what sleepwalkers is basically about. It's kind of like a shapeshifting humanoid being that's going into town and attacking people. Now, I love Sleepwalkers. I think it's exactly what it needs to be. It's a big old dumb violent movie that's energy energetically directed by Mick Garris and has its tongue firmly put in its rotten cheek. Right. So, I mean, the plot basically involves a mother and her son who are both these sleepwalker beings and who are uh, incestuous. They're mother and son with benefits, if you know what I mean. <laughs> yep. They're newcomers in a small town. Uh, the the son Charles, who looks about thirty five, but whatever he's <laughs> yeah. he's in. A, he goes to the local high school, and it's there that he meets Madchan Amik from Twin Peaks, mm-hmm. uh, and he thinks, now that's a life force I'd like to tap. And so uh, I, things go to hell in this movie very quick, like forty five minutes in. It's like, all right, everybody knows there's monsters, and it's just fun from this point out. Just there's just kind of like a delight in this movie, a special effects cameos. You get Mark Hamill. Is Joe Dante and John Landis in this movie? Yeah, I must yeah, have they, are, they are. They're, like they're the a, lab technicians. You also get in the same shot, Toby Hooper and uh, Stephen King yeah. as a bumbling guy. And so like this movie, when it comes to adapting Stephen King, I think it does it in the goofy sense perfectly. Well, it's, it's yeah, it's very pacey. Yeah. Uh, the characters are all, I think, uh, likable. Yeah. Or, or I, even when they're not likable, you kind of like being with them. Yeah, they're charismatic. Like, um, and I mean, these movies, both this movie and Pet Cemetery, are movies that are sort of unburdened with pretension. Mm-hmm. Like, I absolutely, didn't, I didn't see the Pet Cemetery remake, but you could imagine, like, you, you did. No, I didn't. But I'm just nodding, knowing reading it, people's it, reviews. It, it's like this is serious. It could be like it's about grief and trauma, mm-hmm. and yeah. it's like it's not that these ones aren't about grief and trauma. It's just that they're also fun. I think that Sleepwalkers is also un shackled from expectations of the novel of people being like well that's not as good as what i read it can just be like we're just having fun here and there's no expectations other than stephen yeah. king's name being on this although it was not well received at the time i'm surprised by that but i can understand people after also a slew of stephen king adaptations going ah this is dumb this is trash and it is I it mean, is it is trash but it's fun trash yeah. done well like what else do you want yeah uh someone was posting recently like a review that was published in like a literary magazine being like ah these new reviewers enjoying these bad things how dare they when when bosley crowther now that was a real critic well i have to assume that when stephen king's critical reputation was ebbing at the time there were probably a lot of people like the the novel the serious novel is an endangered species and there were probably a lot of people in the literary community who were probably like the barbarians are at the gate yeah this, like this before is... that everybody was reading serious novels well, and it yeah. was Stephen King that uh, broke down that stuff but as I understand I mean his literary reputation was very much helped by the Shawshank Redemption as well mm. you know not just the that's fact... a Stephen King adaptation right and that started to get people to think of him a little bit more seriously and mm. uh, you know also what's that quote in Chinatown uh, politicians and ugly buildings all get respectable if they last long enough (laughs) 
you know, people kind of like Stephen King now. He's they do, not... but then he also gets kind of like a boost by films like It, whether you like it or not. Like yeah. it became a whole phenomenon. Or even the Mick Garris of our generation, Mike Flanagan, who mm-hmm. took it under his uh, umbrella to be like, I will be now the purveyor of Stephen King adaptation. And it's interesting that Mike Flanagan, like he kind of strikes a balance that's probably closer to Kubrick in the way that he approaches this stuff, mm-hmm. is that he is very you know, to the word of Stephen King, uh, sometimes at the detriment of stuff like Gerald's game. But then uh, he can understand to kind of weave adaptations when he does a terrible novel like Dr. Sleep, but he finds a way to do it while making it a semi-sequel to Stanley Kubrick's The Shining, Mm -hmm. while still implementing all the elements from the Dr. Sleep book as well. And Stephen King supposedly saw the movie and was like, yeah, I like that. You did a good job. (laughs) Even though that anytime a new movie comes out or TV series, Stephen King is always on Twitter being like, they finally nailed it. The Dark Tower. They (laughs) figured it out. Unlike Stanley Kubrick raising a film to happen <laughs> i think that there's been more do like you think it still does it still drive stephen king nuts that, no i don't like, think so like i think the, that sh- like, the shining it's iconic it's like please stop asking me about this <laughs> yeah. basically like yeah. let me go to my house behind my big iron uh gates and just don't ask me about it please yeah. let me write in peace so uh i think that what i learned about this is that stephen king adaptations when he's writing them they can be good as long as they're very goofy <laughs> like that's pretty basically it and you know what i kind of like maximum overdrive I do not. It's bad, but it's I mean, ba- it's, it's, it's boring. Funny. I think that that's I find it very scene. funny. When was the last time you watched it? Oh, 10 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. I think you need to do a sit down. Like what pops in your no, mind? No, I think I don't need to do a sit down. <laughs> I think I just need to let What's it live this? in my What's this? It's playing on 35 millimeter at the review. Well, we got to check it out. I, I, would, I would. Absolutely. In an yes. I mean, do you Maybe look I'm at just... my shelf and my maximum overdrive is there as number one in the restaurant collection? Of course it is. <laughs> Maybe I'm just thinking about the ACDC soundtrack. <laughs> I mean, that's great. I love that. Yeah. Or you're thinking about the amazing trailer of Stephen King looking at the camera and being like, I'm going to scare the pants off of you. I'm going to show Kubrick how it's done. Finally. <laughs> All right. So as per usual, you can send us letters at important cinema club podcast at gmail.com. And our first letter is just an answer to a question that was asked a little while ago. Somebody had a inquiry. If we could maybe find the werewolf movie that uh, he remembered, but didn't have the title for. And someone writes in Eddie Crosby. Hey, Justin, will thanks for the amazing podcast. In your previous episode, you asked about the identity of a werewolf movie. It sounds like the boy who cried werewolf, 1973 directed by Nathan Duran, his last movie and starring Kerwin Matthews. It's worth seeing for the makeup effects since he looks more like Benji than a werewolf. The movie is available on YouTube and the scene begins around the hour mark. So there you go. All right. Question answered. I mean, I see this cover all the time. Scream factory, put this movie out. The boy who cried werewolf. And I think it's a TV movie as well, which is probably why I was playing in kind of like a network syndication so whoever asked that question asked to identify that movie please write in and let us know if that was the movie and we can continue this kind of like <laughs> call and response style and if you don't you'll be cursed <laughs> and we got to keep up the shocktober appearances our next letter goes hollywood's best movies bonjour gentlemen citizen kane <laughs> casablanca gone with the wind i know you are often above impulse to rank things in order or to give star ratings not true we do it all the time mostly as a joke a more abstract question recently got me thinking which decade of hollywood films would you take if you could only have one can the decades be ranked as a lover of the golden age i always had the 30s as my favorite i associate the decade with a flurry of new genres being born and a burst of energy in the form the 30s feel raw and provocative looking back i realize all my favorite slapstick movies were 40s the lady eve his girl friday miracle of morgan's creek i'm a big monster fan but val luton's best is in the all the 40s too 
And how could I consider myself an important file without mentioning Detour? I think most movie fans would say 60s or 70s, although that survey hasn't been officially sent out yet. Curious if you have any thoughts on this personally. I have money on which one both of you will pick. Keep up the great work. I love you, Daniel Aww, from that, Chicago. That's so sweet. Uh, that he loves us. Listen, my favorite decade is uh, the decade that I was a teenager and the movies were there that formed me. A Amen. But actually, do you have a favorite decade for No. Film? I, unlike Will, am not good with dates that stuff comes out i then that's my main skill that is your main skill yeah so will my impulse would be to say the 30s because in terms of just hollywood movies because yeah i think of like the marx brothers uh the three stooges uh i think of uh wheeler and woolsey yeah um i think of the universal horror movies the warner brothers gangster movies so many great things happening in that decade but then like if you were to just do the raw numbers like what decade had the most classic movies it's got to be the 70s. If you take any year of the 70s, yeah. if you go to the letterboxd list of like came out in 1974, yeah. you'll get 100 classics. Here's what I'm going to say. I'm going to be a baby brained uh, boy and say that 80s for me, if I had to pick one, and not because like I was a kid in the 80s. He's got the Goonies. He's got, He's got back, e back to the Future. No, because this is when you have the influx of horror films okay so you don't have the 70s exploitation films, so you don't have the giallos and stuff like that but you have the rise of the regional horror filmmaker you have the rise of the shot on video filmmaker too and that's the stuff i love and if i didn't have the 80s i wouldn't have things that's and true. i don't think i could live without things in my life you know what this makes me think i think that putting aside the raw number of great movies the aesthetic has to count for something mm -hmm. like what's the vibe you like and clearly the 80s as well it has the highest percentage of all right in theaters there is an acceptance also by the rise of video of a more fantastical style in cinema horror is also while being heavily censored very popular so let's get in there and we're going to pump out as much of this stuff as we can and you know what it's right up my alley to give a more definitive answer for for me i think i'll have to go with the 30s because when i hear the the 30s yeah because when i hear the hiss and crackle of the marx brothers dialogue when i when i see the shadows of the black cat or white zombie that's where i feel uh really at home that's well, what i love i mean the 90s clerks what can well, we do without clerks? I mean, you know, greatest black and white movie of all time, probably. <laughs> the hiss and crackle of clerks. That's what we enjoy. Yeah. All right. So uh, next episode, we're ranking all the decades. <laughs> That's right. Listen, 70s is going to win. Who are, you, who are you kidding? Buddy, every decade has, <laughs> yeah, has something. great movies. Not 2000s or 2010. Dead decade. Cinema is death. Our current decade is not shaping up great. Why can't we get like a revitalization every decade completely new? We're just, we're just going through the motions. Why can't fashion change? I agree. That's what I'm getting to. I agree. So what are we doing on a Patreon this week, Will? We are continuing the Shocktober theme. We are determining the scariest movies of all time. Now, let us specify. We say it a lot in the episode, but I feel people will just like hear us give a number of ratings on some of these movies as we go through the Letterboxd Top 100 Horror Movies. And we give each movie a one to five scarifying rating. That's right. Based on how scary it is. Yes. And we have complicated criteria. It's very scientific. Yep. A hundred percent foolproof. Could, you can't even deny whatever scarifying rating we give to most of these movies. Very fun. We also talk about, it's like the top 250 based on like ratings, if it has over a thousand. So of course, rightfully so, Don't Let the River Beast Get You is at 181, I think, 180? Yeah, right ahead of Cat People, which, <laughs> yes. is, which is so and funny. Behind I Walk with a Zombie, I believe. Uh, no, ahead of I Walk, no, it's ahead of two Jacques Turner <laughs> movies. <laughs> 
Uh, so we're doing that on our Patreon. Very fun episode. Very long too. Uh, Patreon.com slash The Important Cinema Club. And next week, what are we doing, Will? Well, Shocktober often likes to travel abroad. We often like to see the spooks that the whole world has to offer. <laughs> and so we are going south of the border. Not our border. For south of- South, yeah. South we're of, going to the United States? We're going even further south than the United States to Mexico to Whoa. talk about the Santo pictures. What? But he's a Mexican wrestler. What does he have to do with horror? Well, oh, he's constantly- Fighting supernatural enemies. Lycanthropes. You know, he's wrestling them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I've, I don't think I've ever seen a Santo movie from beginning to end. So what I'm going to recommend- Definitely Santo and Blue Demon fight the monsters. Okay. It's a late period one. It's in color and it's really cheap, but there's a lot of monsters in oh, it. So you're really going to like sounds it. Sounds good. Here's the problem with the Santo films. There isn't one that you're like, this is the good one. <laughs> like if you look on Letterboxd, the ratings will all be like two and a half, two, maybe three. Santo and the Monsters. That's like the top one because it's the goofiest one and it has the most. Okay. It's a little tough. So, but I will recommend santo versus the vampire women okay black and white very omario bava-esque but like a lot of these movies lots of just static camera watching some wrestling <laughs> like 20 minutes of each of these movies is made up of that sounds good so let's do those two and then we'll look at the list maybe one of them will catch your um your eye and be like oh i want to do this one i know that indicator put a box set out it doesn't have the best santo it's like santo versus like the infernal brain which is just like normal guys <laughs> And uh, so, like, but we want to do the ones where he's against monsters. He fights some mummies as well. That's right. So I'm excited to learn more about Santo. All right. So that's what we're doing next week. Until then, my name is Justin DeClue. I'm Will Sloan. Thanks for listening. Well, we're always keeping a finger on the pulse of the movie industry. We're always... uh, (laughs) We're checking comingsoon.net every morning to see uh, what's going on. And, you know, one of the big movies of this fall season is not really a movie exactly. It's Taylor Swift, The Eras Tour. Oh, yes. And the fact that it made like $30 billion or some ridiculous number. It hasn't even come out yet. Yeah, I know. It's targeting, you know, a $200 million debut. And people are saying like, Taylor Swift, she's the new Tom Cruise. She's going to save movies. Yeah. Even even without it really being a movie. Is it saving movies? movies if it's just like one really successful thing every six months yeah that is not creating a trend that other people can follow but it's just the obsessive fans that are doing that stuff i'll say i'm sure the theaters will take whatever they can get do you feel like you've tied your identity to any pop culture in a very kind of obsessive way that's an interesting question uh i mean we love the three stooges we love well uh, we wrote a book about matt farley matt farley Uh, yeah but like it I'm always fascinated and I've been noticing this a lot where I've been reading a lot of manga and that there is a sense of like, you don't even tie yourself particularly to the manga, but it's like the characters mm. or like the idea of the thing is what you get kind of enraptured with. Well, certainly people are like that or were like that with Harry Potter mm. and with uh, certain of the star Wars things. Like after force awakens came out, you'd see all sorts of people online yeah. be, being like that. The Adam driver, Daisy Ridley relationship was very important to them on <laughs> be- a, on a personal level. Because I wonder like if I was younger coming up in the world today, is that something that I would have done because I am so inundated with information that to kind of like ground myself in something i need to tie myself to one of these ships well i definitely think that when i was a really little kid batman was like that for me i was obsessed with everything to do with batman up to and including just like 
Bruce Wayne himself mm-hmm. as, as a guy. <laughs> as a guy? You, well, I guess so. Like, it's like, just did you, like... Did you kind of, like, try to dress like Bruce Wayne? Or oh, well, I, I wore my Batman costume all the time. I no, but that's not bad. Well I mean, like, if it's Bruce Wayne the guy, you're like, Mom, can I make my hair curly like uh, Michael Keaton? I was probably like that a little bit with Jim Carrey, actually. <laughs> really? Yeah. Did, wait, did you have a Jim Carrey-like uh, shirt in your closet? Of course I did. Oh, wow! I never had any of that. Yeah, and I got... I, I would sometimes get my mom to, like... like <laughs> Do the hair thing, the Ace Ventura hair thing. Wow, like wave it. Three hundred yeah. episodes in, they're still revealed. Of <laughs> Will Sloan dressing like Jim Carrey, going around and talking like Jim Carrey. You did not talk like Jim Carrey. I absolutely did. <laughs> I, I absolutely, I absolutely did. The Ace Ventura voice. Now, if someone was like Jim Carrey's not funny, would you be like, you fucking son of a bitch? I mean, not now. No, no, no. no but back then, the idea of not finding Jim Carrey funny was was so foreign, unfathomable. Yeah. Yeah, it was. It was like how how could you not? But yeah, I probably would have actually now. That like you if you had that, the internet and stuff, I, I like would have been very upset by somebody saying. But that. I do feel like the Taylor Swift thing. Like these are people with money, so they're probably older than a twelve-year-old Will Slow. Wait, probably younger than twelve. Uh, like try try five. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so funny if you were like, alrighty then. <laughs> <laughs> you should go for Jim Carrey for Halloween now. <laughs> Yeah, wouldn't that be funny? Yeah. I'll, I'll go around saying like, like, what are the things he says in interviews now? Like, there is no me. I, there, <laughs> yeah, there's no self. Also, vaccines are, are not real. Also, I didn't kill my girlfriend. Uh, it was a complete mistake. Oh, God. Yeah. yeah. The number 23 haunts me to this day. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, man. What would you do if you had an army like Taylor Swift does? Hmm. Wouldn't that be terrifying? It would be so having scary. Having that power. I, I don't, I don't, I wouldn't want that. Because she is, I think, the most famous person in the world is like, Taylor Swift? Yeah. More than Joe Biden, I would say. You want to hear something scary? If I saw her on the street, I don't think I would recognize her. Like, I know what she uh, looks like. Yeah. Well, okay. I don't. Th- I actually don't think you would recognize most famous people on the street because mm-hmm. you're not expecting to see uh, them. Didn't I recognize Ari Aster on the street walking around? The I stand th- corrected. I, I saw Adam McGoyan walking around not too long ago. I recognized Wait, him. Wait, did you see him? Because I remember you were with me. He's like, is that Adam McGoyan in the, in the library? No, it's not him. No, I, within the last year, I definitely okay. saw him like around King Street. Mm. Well, I, you see him down there so often that it's yeah. not like even an event mm-hmm. but like another celebrity. that's how famous that's the circles we travel in that you get <laughs> that that we see adam mcgoy and walk in the street and we're just like pshaw but i, I think that's someone like taylor swift like i don't hear any of her songs unless you are we out of the woods yet are we out of the woods yet are we out of that you haven't heard that i don't one? know i don't know that song no welcome to new york is not that... the abel ferrera film. <laughs> wait does it go new york no, 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 it's, no, not no it's not her <laughs> I like talking to you about this because you know just as little as I do. <laughs> and you know what? It makes me feel less alone. <laughs> I'm not I'm not ashamed by this. Yeah. But I don't have any cars that I'm driving around in, right. listening to any music. I do don't work in a grocery store like I did when I was a teenager. And I was remember that song? It's like they put up a parking lot. Yeah, yeah. Heard that a million times in the grocery store. Mm-hmm. Uh so I don't really get that kind of stuff. So any Taylor Swift news I read. Like like cars zooming by, like mm. she's dating or was spotted with some football There's player. A football guy, that I don't know who he is. There was a Matty Healy before yeah. that. Yeah. So what if we started a pop culture podcast where we follow just? Oh, let's start a pop culture podcast and do no research. Just <laughs> no. do it like that, where we're just kind of like she's dating a football guy. I think is that. <laughs> what is her number one hit? Yeah. Could you name a Taylor Swift song? I can't. <laughs> 